What's going on guys? Kevin Estello of Fieldcraft Survival. I'm the host of this advertisement for this podcast. Guys, uh, this podcast is only possible with our sponsors, with the folks that advertise here. And I want to recognize two of them. The first sponsor is Sig Sauer. Guys, Sig Sauer is more than a firearms company. Sig Sauer produces a lot of the accessories for those firearms that they do make, including amazing ammunition. I want to talk to you about that ammunition just for a hot second. I'm a ballistics nerd. I've attended the Sig Sauer Academy, Precision Scope Rifle, Advanced Precision Scope Rifle, Reach for a Thousand. When I was living out in Utah and we were using the Kafaru property out there, I mean, I was shooting out to 980 yards on a regular basis. And I'll tell you some of the best ammo that I found to do that, Sig Sauer ammunition. Something that you should know about their ammo in ballistics and long range shooting, you got to know what standard deviation is between the rounds. You don't want one round that's going say 2,600 feet per second and another round that's going 2,400 feet per second out of the same lot. Well, the SIG ammo has a very, very low standard deviation. That's what I've found. We're talking only five feet per second, which is very negligible. So I love the stuff that SIG puts out there. They make great, great ammo, including some really good ammo for their 365. They have a special round that is designed for that pistol and other short micro compact pistols like the 365. So I'm a huge fan of SIG and I'm very thankful for them being, you know, one of the podcast sponsors. And of course, if you are going to train and you're going to carry a pistol, maybe you're going to carry their ammunition, then I would recommend that you guys train at the Six Hour Academy. It's up in New Hampshire and they also have training around the country, but that's their primary location. And the SIG training is awesome. You can do everything from pistol to carbine to shotgun to precision scope rifle. You name it, you can do it there. So guys, please head over to SIGSOUR.com. Take a look at all the things that they have to offer. Now, there's another company that I want to recommend, and it's what I currently have in my tumbler right here, and that is Hoist. Hoist Hydration. Uh, there is a 10% off discount if you use the code FIELDCRAFT10. That is F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T-1-0. Guys, go to the website, www.drinkhoist.com. Hoist Hydration is pretty awesome because it has very little sugar. If you spend a lot of time working out, you need to replace your electrolytes. Hoist is a great drink to do that. In addition, Hoist has no artificial colors. So, you know, you go to the store and like you want to get an energy drink and a lot of people, mainly kids, get attracted by like the bright colors that they see in the refrigerator. Well, you're not going to find that with Hoist, but you are going to find a drink that is going to help you rehydrate. And it's used by a lot of elite athletes. Our instructors here at the company love Hoist. When I was out in Utah, we'd get cases of Hoist and every once in a while, I'd be able to steal one or two away from our marketing director who has a whole refrigerator of it. So if you guys ever go to our tower office or if you ever run by his office, go to his refrigerator, maybe he'll never notice it. Take a couple of the bottles, try it out. I think you're gonna love it. Guys, Hoist hydration is awesome stuff. I found it nationally, right? You can probably find it in your grocery store, or you can, like I said, you can go to www.drinkhoist.com and you can use that coupon code FIELDCRAFT10 and get yourself a discount off of Hoist. So I'm gonna tell you, it's good stuff. You know, people say you need to hydrate. I agree, most people are walking around dehydrated. Well, you might wanna do something about that. You might wanna drink Hoist. All right, guys, here we go. Let's get to this podcast. Hey guys, Kevin Estella here, FIELDCRAFT training director of training. This is part two of my podcast about 
becoming a survival instructor or bushcraft instructor or outdoors educator, whatever you want to call it. And the objective of this is much like the objective of part one. I just want to point out some of the extended details about my story, sharing any insight I can give along the way of what pitfalls to avoid and some things that you may want to look into and obviously tell some funny stories along the way. So this is part two. Don't mind me. I'm just fiddling right now with a Colt Python that I just picked up. This thing is awesome. Uh, you know, if you guys know me, I'm from Connecticut. So having a 357 Magnum revolver that is from my home state, which is gorgeous. I got to put this thing down. It's pretty cool. All right. So that's a way it's in sight. Definitely not out of mind. Guys, continuing on with this, uh, I'm going to drink some coffee along the way here. Part one, I really wanted to talk about establishing myself in the survival community, bushcraft community, growing, learning from mentors, going to different schools, building a name, right? Part two is about branching out and dealing with the inevitable, right? Changes to your plan. In part one, I talked about how there's no such thing as a governing body to call someone a survival instructor. So always be leery of a company that wants to call you that without any vetting process and be, be very careful uh, trusting information. Like you can always ask someone if they call themselves a survival instructor, who they learn from the extent of their training and all that great stuff. Okay. The important thing is that whoever you learn from, whoever you want to be, make sure that that person or you can prove capability through actions and not titles, right? You can slap a title on just about anything, but it doesn't make it something right. You got to be able to follow up with actions, not just words. So part two is more about the grind and staying sharp. And, and speaking of something that's sharp, last for, or I should say the first podcast about this topic kind of drifted off and ended around 2010. And in 2010, it was actually March of 2010, I put out a knife review of a knife that I designed through trial and error of many different knives over the years, right? If you think about it, I was involved in the knife community from a very, very young age. And, you know, I was a moderator on different forums and, you know, I collected a whole bunch of knives. I bought a whole bunch of garbage knives from Gander Mountain thinking that they were really cool only to find out that they weren't. And then, uh, you know, obviously I found knives that worked for me. And something that comes up in the survival community is, hey, what is your signature knife, right? You think about it, Morris Kachansky had the Mora and Ray Mears has the Woodlore. And the guys from the tracker school, they have the, the tracker knife, okay? So there's always a signature knife associated with a person if they're in this outdoor community. And I was like, you know what? I kind of want to make a knife that fits my needs and fits my hand. And it's kind of the sum total of everything. So in late 2009, I reached out to Scott Gossman, uh, one of my good, good friends. And I said, hey, Scott, I want you to make me a knife based on these specs. And I gave him the specs and I came to those specs by looking at the Bark River Fox River, the Bark River North Star, the Fairman Knives Peacemaker, the Coster Bushcraft, the SWC Woodlore. And I came to the conclusion once I wrote down all those specs and I did averages, average blade length was 3.9. Average handle was 4.25. It was one inch wide. Average thickness was 532nd thick. The most common steel used was A2. Most of the knives that I preferred were spear point, right? And I'm, and I'm going through and I'm like, this is the knife. So I created a cardboard template. I mailed it off to Scott. Scott ended up uh, making me a temp, making me a steel version sharpened. And then my friend, uh, Greg Haw of Lone Rider 
custom grips who now works for Jojo's Gunworks. He put the handles on for me and I made the sheath. So that became the Polaris knife. And I called it the Polaris because my last name is Estella and in Latin, Estrella is star. So that whole idea of stars, following your stars, there's a lot of uh, symbolism that I'm going to talk about later on. That really starts when I called my knife the Polaris. And in March on March 30th of 2010, I did a review on Blade Forums. Eventually, that review took off. People were like, this is a really cool knife. Scott later asked me, he goes, hey, can I make more of these knives and sell them? I'm like, sure thing, buddy. It's You're the knife maker. I just wanted one. And fast forward a few years, he tells me it's the most popular knife he's ever sold, uh, still to this day. So uh, he had some patches made that said, you know, Gossman Polaris Estella designed. And I'm, I'm proud that people are getting those patches. And I'm very happy that Scott has a, a great seller. All right. So uh, what I'll say about knives is if you are going down this path where you're attaching your name to a school or you're going to start your own school or become your own instructor, whatever, just be very careful of the designs that you attach your name to. And I say design because we can be very attracted to form before we get attracted to function, right? You look at certain knives and you're like, damn, that thing just looks cool, but it doesn't perform at all. So it's really important that if you're going to attach your name to something, it better be as good of a performer as you should be in front of a class. So uh, if you think about it, my knife is nothing fancy. It's nothing new. It, it doesn't have any design features that haven't been done a million times before. And I've never claimed that it would. So I wanted that to be my, my legacy knife, right? The Gossman Polaris and other knives that I've designed over the years falls back, fall back on that idea. It's the idea of function before form. Be very careful of instructors that have a million survival knives, right? A million knives attached to their name, a million knives that are branded with their logo. And it's like, well, what do you need this one for? What about that one? What does that one do that the original one doesn't? You know, there's got to be a, a notable difference in performance or reason. Otherwise, you're just going to become a person that is a merchant as opposed to a sage. And if you're known for someone who just sells shit instead of focusing on, on getting the right gear to the people, then that says something about your character. All right. So now 2010, my knife comes out 2011. I really have to make a, an important decision. And that decision was, do I stay wilderness learning center? Do I start my own company? Do I do both? And I talked to Marty and I was like, Hey Marty, I love working for you, but I need to be able to have my own thing. So when a job comes up, I can say, look, this is my company. I don't have to drive all the way up to upstate New York to, to run it. I can run it here. He goes, you can do that, but you need to do this, 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 and this. And he outlines all these different steps that I need to take in order to kind of branch out. Keep this in mind. Organization gets large enough, it has to fracture. Or if an organization gets large enough, there are going to be splinter elements of it. I didn't want to disassociate with the Wilderness Learning Center. I wanted to run parallel with it. And obviously my reputation is nothing of what Marty's was at the time. So I was like, Marty, I just need to have something for me. And Marty being a mentor and a great friend and kind of like a stepfather, Marty was like, I want you to do this. Go for it. So in 2011, my sister drafted up my paperwork for my LLC and I started Estella Wilderness Education, which in retrospect, that name is a mouthful, right? E-S-T-E-L-A, Wilderness Education, Estella Wilderness Education. <laughs> you look at some of the most popular companies out there and they don't have as many syllables and consonants in their, in their name, right? Apple, IBM, you know, 
computer companies, you know, wood lore. If we're talking about a bushcraft school, I mean, Ray Mirrors got it. So uh, I started that and people just started saying EWE, right? EWE LLC. The good thing about having my own company and having an LLC is number one, I can start writing off equipment and training and all that as part of a business. It's a lot easier to justify, hey, I'm going and shooting and I'm purchasing ammo for this and that if I have an actual company that that does that. Now, when you start writing off items for your company, you have to keep records of it. You can't just say at the end of the year to your accountant or if you're doing your taxes, hey, I spent $5,000 on training. You need to print out receipts, get an envelope, do it old school or screenshot everything and put it into a folder on the drive, whatever you decide to do, but keep track of it. And you'd be amazed at what you can write off. Mileage, vehicle depreciation, uniform, office supplies, mailing expenses. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can write off. Another thing, make sure you get your insurance and your waivers squared away. Actually talk to a lawyer. Don't just copy something online because it's probably not going to be as suited, you know, for your needs as it was for the original person. Another thing that you're going to have to start looking into, and maybe you didn't realize this when you were working for someone else, or maybe you didn't realize this before you started working at all, you're going to have to buy gear that students are going to use, or you're going to have to make the decision saying students bring everything to my class. There are pros and cons to both. If you buy all the gear that students are going to use, students could trash it. We know that there are students that are going to respect you. There are going to be students that are going to trash your, your, your gear, and now you have to buy it all over again or charge the students, or maybe you have students show up with nothing, I'm sorry, with everything. And now that's your reputation. Like, oh man, they didn't provide anything to us. Another thing was, all right, now I've got a company. Where am I going to run courses? I needed to find land. And I ended up leasing land from a friend of mine in Granville, Massachusetts. It was called Lone Camp. And for those of you that have gone to the courses that I ran there, it was just north of Connecticut and it was fantastic. But every time I ran a course there, I had to pay for the day use, right? So that digs into your bottom line. And, you know, here working for Fieldcraft, you know, as a director of training, when I run a course somewhere, I'm paying with company money, the facility that we're renting, you know, a daily fee. And then on top of that, we have to fly an instructor in. So there's facility fee, flight. And then if the instructor is not one of our salaried guys, we have to pay them a contractor rate. So you might be looking at anywhere from a grand, 1500 two grand of a upfront expense before the company even starts making any money. So if we have a course where there are 10 people signed up for 200 bucks, well, you broke even, all right? And there are going to be times when you are just starting where you're going to be breaking even or maybe, maybe making a couple hundred bucks for a day or two days worth of work, but you got to keep grinding. And that is absolutely, absolutely important to remember. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Other things you might offer a course somewhere for free and you might have one or two people show up. And I remember first year of me running my company, I ran something out of East Hartford, Connecticut out of, I looked just last night and the, the company is no longer there, but out of like a bait and hardware store there. And I had one person show up and it was like a 10 year old kid from the neighborhood who asked me all these questions about bow drill and this and that, but he was in the store for whatever reason. And I just happened to be there. So don't get discouraged. If you're running courses and someone's not there, you got to keep grinding. You can always use the photos from the course or the setup to show people that you're getting out there. So you got to change your perspective. It's not a total loss. You learn something from it. Next time, maybe you retain emails or next time you push it out through social media. You got to learn to deal with it. Okay. Now, 
Something that I mentioned earlier was this idea of branding. And part of building this company before I had my website up there was I needed to have a logo. And as I mentioned before, my company's company knife or my, my personal knife is the Gossman Polaris. So I needed to have a logo. And I looked at a lot of the schools that were out there and some of the logos were like very basic, right? Campfire. Okay. There's a campfire or there's a tripod or it's a knife and a tomahawk or, you know, whatever it was. I was like, it, it was very surface level. I spoke to one of my instructors in SIOC, Tuhan Rafael Kayanen, who is a graphic artist and very talented, super creative guy. And he said, send me some ideas of what is associated with you. So I told him, Gossman Polaris, stars. I said, I'm a kayaker, canoeer. So I sent him paddles and I sent him all this stuff. And he sent me a whole sheet of different possible logos. He's like, well, remember your logo, it shouldn't have words on it. It should be an image, right? The Nike swoosh doesn't have any words on it in theory. It's just, or in practice, it's just the swoosh and it's recognizable. We came up with this idea called the burning star. And my company logo was originally red and black and it had a gold trim. It was an oval and it was a burning star. So you think about it. My last name is Estella, hence the star. Red and black are Sioc colors. Red and black are also the colors of Fairfield University, which was my alma, it is my alma mater. The gold represents the patch that I earned at the Wilderness Learning Center. So it was a head nod to that. And stars in survival are a constant in the sky, right? I mean, we know that stars are used for navigation. We also know that stars are bright and you can follow them much like you can trust your training. You can follow your training and it will never lead you astray. So there's a lot of symbolism with my, with my logo and to unwrap, uh, sent me all the logos. I, I paid him for services and, uh, I started getting patches made. And, and the important thing was just like Marty patches are always earned. They're never sold. And if you come up with a logo or a patch, obviously people are going to do you know, coins. They're going to hand you challenge coins. They're going to hand you patches and they might expect one in return, but you have to hold the line in the sand and say, look, I don't give away patches. I might make stickers and you can have a sticker, but these patches are earned. And that's a very, very important integrity piece because if you just start giving them away, then it means that you give away your training. And if you just give away your training, does it really have value? You got to earn it. So there are people out there still rocking my original patches and it's pretty, pretty cool. All right. So now I decide that I'm going to start running courses. I've got everything worked out. I got my website. I've got course descriptions. Uh, website was done by my friend, uh, John Parings, another SIAC guy. A shout out to Guru JP. And I'm like, let's see the first course I'm going to run. Let's, let's make my first course. What my first experience was. I'm going to do a canoeing course. And I did like a comprehensive introduction to canoeing at mainstream canoe. I've got a bunch of people signed up. I'm like, you know what? I've done this trip a million times. There's not going to be any issue whatsoever. People are going to come. They're going to camp out. They'll leave the next day. Well, people showed up and it was raining and that water got really high. And even though everyone was in high spirits, they wanted to support me. There was an issue with that course. Now, two of my friends, I'm not going to call them out by name because you guys could probably go on my social media, find them and harass them. Well, two of them, we we're going down the river after instruction we're hiding under bridges, getting out of torrential downpour. And I'm like, Hey guys, can you go down ahead of me? I'll take up the rear and make sure you pull out at the spot. Well, I get down to where I assume that they're going to be. And I'm like, where are these two guys? And they're like, we thought they were behind you. Next thing you know, we hear ambulances, we hear fire trucks and we hear police cruisers. Turns out that they didn't pull out where they were supposed to. 
And where this is in New Hartford, Connecticut, it's right at the mouth of what's called Satan's Kingdom, which Satan's Kingdom is a class three rapid, sometimes referred to as a three plus. And it's doable in an open canoe if you have airbags and if you have experience. And usually those canoes are not the ones that we rented to go upstream down to the canoe shop. Well, they did not see the takeout. They went past it. They ended up going through Satan's kingdom. And when the canoe dropped off of one of the the drops, one of the guys in the back got ejected over the guy in the front. And they both ended up in the drink downriver. They both ended up on different sides of the river. One of them started making a fire to warm himself. The other one ran down a fire road, flagged someone down, and they got back. And one of them was like borderline hypothermic. Good times, right? First course ever. When I got in and I, I couldn't figure out where these two guys were, the decision was right there. It was like, okay, do you call 911? Do you wait it out? We called 911 right away. And they're like, oh, we're already responding to it. You got to learn from that mistake, guys, right? That was the rockiest start, I think, to any outdoor business. But every course teaches you a lesson. And in that case, you cannot get comfortable in the great outdoors. The great outdoors is wild. And if you're teaching courses, you need to have plans. I did not have a plan for someone to miss the takeout because I thought it was clearly marked. Well, it was, except it was raining, it was foggy, and there was high water. You got to have plans just in case. Now, I continue to teach courses, and in 2012, probably got the biggest break when it came to the great outdoors. And I'm going to kind of go through these rapid fire because I'll try to keep this podcast around an hour. 2012, I hear from my SIOC instructor, to unwrap the one that did my logo. And he said, Hey, we've got an, a Hollywood guy who wants training and keep in mind in SIAC, you know, SIAC STG, SIAC tactical group works with a lot of military guys. There are guys in the SIAC ranks who have been through SEER school and have been, you know, pretty experienced in the great outdoors in their own right. To unwrap is like, you're the guy that we want to teach this Hollywood guy. So uh, my friend, Dave Kalstein, who's now a SIAC instructor himself, he came out and he was like, look, I want to do this, this, and this. I'm like, all right, it's going to be a private class a week long. And I'm like, shit, what am I going to fit this in? And it happened to be during my April vacation as a teacher. So uh, I had to purchase all sorts of new gear. I had to get a pop-up tent. I had to get a camp stove. I had to do everything that was done for me at the Wilderness Learning Center. This is my first break at running a full course, soup to nuts, everything. I had to cook. I had to train. I had to entertain. And I'm like, where the hell am I going to do this? I called up Marty and I was like, Marty, is there any chance I can use your property? Because I know it well, and this would mean the world to me. And he's like, absolutely. So Marty came out and he met up, met up with us. And my friend, big John, who's living up in Malone, John came out and he was my assistant. And we met up with Dave and, and Dave flew into Burlington and drove across. And I taught him for a week and, you know, inevitably it's going to come up, you know, questions about Hollywood and working as a writer director for NCIS LA and this and that. And Dave goes, man, you're really good at presenting. You need to come out to Hollywood. I was like, I need to come out to Hollywood. I'm like, I've done something for the history channel, but I never thought I'd be out in Hollywood. So Dave's a cool dude. He says, look, I will introduce you to my agent who will get you in touch with your own agent. You're going to Hollywood this summer. Gotcha. So, uh, and Dave's a very good friend of mine and he's like a close, you know, associate, someone who I, I trust. So uh, he's like, look, when you come out there, you can crash on my couch. And, you know, this is before he got married and, you know, he's, his girlfriend would come by occasionally. So uh, 
I go there and I'm like sleeping on his couch and I'm going to these meetings. Now, when you go to Hollywood and you go to these general meetings, a general meeting is like you're doing an introduction and sometimes you're meeting with some pretty big people in the, the, the industry, significant people in the industry. So for example, William Morris Endeavor, that was my talent agency. I was part of, I was signed in unscripted, unscripted reality was the genre. Now, right down the hallway was the guy who represented pretty much all of the Marvel action heroes. That was their agent. And if you look up WME in Hollywood, you'll get an idea of who, you know, who they represent. So they're setting up these general meetings and Dave is driving me to them. Uh, so I'm meeting up with like GRB Productions, A. Smith and Company, Scott Free, right? Like Ridley Scott, you know, the guy who did Prometheus and Top Gun, <laughs> like I'm at his company. I wasn't ready to make the move though. And all these people are telling me like, yeah, if you're going to be in Hollywood, you got to be out here because we need to meet with you more frequently, this and that. I mean, I had just gotten tenure as a teacher and tenure means that there's certainty with my job unless I royally screwed up. Hollywood, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's feast or famine. It's either you're going to be working or you're going to be waiting. And I didn't want to spend my summers just riding my friend's couch and waiting for a phone call that may never happen. So even though I was having fun going to these meetings and, and meeting celebrities here and there and standing behind Keanu Reeves at the one of the Bourne uh, legacy movies, you know, and giving the head nod to Keanu Reeves, I was like, where the hell am I? Like, it was just crazy. I decided ultimately that I had to stay the course and be a teacher. Now, uh, 2011, 2012, that's when that's happening. 2012, 2012 is also when the Wilderness Learning Center closes. And the Wilderness Learning Center was the longest running outdoor survival school on the East Coast, east of the Mississippi. And for Marty to close, it was a pretty big deal. But Marty wanted to spend time with Aggie. He wanted to run his homestead. He wanted to host the occasional events. And he still did. He, he hosted the War and the Peace Rendezvous. And that was a very, very difficult decision. Does he close it? Does he run it? Does he do private classes? We still traveled a little bit to teach the occasional private course. Like we went out to Bark River Knives and we taught a private class out there. But Marty wanted to, you know, be more domesticated. He wanted to hang out with his his animal family and, and his wife. No problem. But now that meant I was on my own, right? I'm on my own. Torch has passed. And at that time, a lot of people were throwing around the word like Marty was your mentor. You're the mentee. Here is, you know, the the closing of a great school, but here is the owner's protege. Right. And a lot of people compared me to Marty. And it's it's very difficult when you guys get into the great outdoor community. People are going to compare you to your instructors and you got to respect them and you got to make sure that whatever you do, you honor their legacy. That's going to come into play later on. So I continue doing my thing. I'm running courses. 2013, I decide I'm going to run a course called Emergency Overnight, right? Emergency Night Out, Eno. And it was supposed to be fair weather. Well, prior to that emergency night out, we got dumped on with snow. So I've got a bunch of people in Granville, Massachusetts, deep in the backcountry, like a mile off the main road with a Chevy Suburban, an FJ Cruiser, a Ford F-150. I had a Tacoma at the time. Everyone got stuck, right? Because tires without chains, they sink. And, you know, we did a lot of digging out and that was a fun class. I mean, we built Quincy's, we built uh, snow shelters. We had a cabin that we could use. I made an epic breakfast the next day. I mean, people had a great time and they still talk about it. That was nine years ago. I'm sorry, 10 years ago. 
that year I also uh, did what was called budget bushcraft. And this one really pissed off the outdoor community. I had instructors from other schools that will remain nameless say to me, you can't teach that class for only $99. And I was like, listen, this information is free. It's normally stuff that's passed down from father to son, or it's passed down within a tribe or within a community. And these are skills that people should have. And I'm not going to exploit them for financial gain. I just want to get just enough to cover my expenses, maybe make a little bit here and there, keep things going, but under a hundred bucks for a weekend of training, show up on a Friday, leave on a Sunday. People loved it. And (laughs) the first time I ran it was in the summer of 2013. The interesting thing about that course was I did a Bannock lesson, much like I do now on my two day overnight courses, students are making, you know, all this bread, right? Fry bread and twist bread and uh, ash cakes and things like that. They get so carb loaded that they didn't want to do shelter class right afterwards. So the funny thing is, is that course kind of set the standard where I said, I'm not going to teach Bannock until I do all the the heavy stuff. And I'll do Bannock like first thing in the morning when people need energy, but I'm not going to do it midday in a heat wave where people are going to be falling asleep as I'm talking to them. So now that course really kind of changed the perspective of what I was doing. I didn't want to just teach survival skills. I wanted to show traditional living, bushcraft, show that, you know, survival is kind of like the tip of the iceberg that's exposed. Bushcraft is the 99% of the iceberg that's underwater. And people really, really liked it. And I loved it. Now, along the way, teaching bushcraft, you know, I'm saying to myself like, okay, I can do all this, but it's exhausting. I need to find people that can be my instructors that are, you know, in a way, like the way I was for Marty, like I could teach the vast majority, but every so often find some people that are specialized in different things and I can have them there. And especially if I travel to have people be my point people, it was great. So, uh, I had the EWE cadre and I still have a group chat with my friends, the cadre, Dwayne Unger, Lieutenant Mike, Mike Travis, John Brown, and Ben Legrand. Those are the, the, the OGs and Scott Gossman, if you will. So, uh, these guys are my close friends still to this day. They've helped out with a few field craft classes. And, uh, if you look up Dwayne Unger outdoors on Instagram, Lieutenant Mike 310, Blue Mountain Bushcraft. These are the guys that are, are legit outdoorsmen. And you want to make sure that you only hire folks who can do what you do and they will represent you well. I will mark my word. I will never vouch for someone as a survival instructor with me unless they've trained with me. And the same way that I trained with Marty, like I need to know you can do the job well. And if you can't, then maybe you show skills, but you're not an instructor. If you can just read a a set of bullet points, but you can't fill in the blanks. And if you blank when people ask questions, you should not be an instructor. You gotta have skill set. You gotta have knowledge. And all these guys did. Hey guys, sorry for the interruption. This is Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival, just interrupting the podcast just for a hot second to recognize one of our sponsors that make this podcast possible. And that is Vertex. Guys, go to www.vertex.com, use the coupon code Fieldcraft, and you're going to get 20% off. That is www.vertex.com. That's V-E-R-T-X.com. And you will get 20% off of the website. A bunch of the folks here at the company use Vertex bags, use Vertex pants, Vertex clothing. You know, I'll tell you, I've used some Vertex products over the years that really stand out. And one of them is their simple magazine pouch for the range. You know, when I go to the range, I like having my mags preloaded. So if I have to go to a range that's hourly, I can already have mags loaded and I just take them out of my mag pouch. 
And instead of just having them clunk around in the bottom of my range bag, I've got them in vertex pouches. So I've got one for my Glock 19 that I keep everything loaded up in, and it's great just for organization. I've worn vertex pants for a very long time. When I was a survival instructor years and years ago, I had a vertex shirt that I really, really like. I don't know where that one went probably lost it or it probably got destroyed somehow or maybe in one of my moves. But the good thing is, is that Vertex is coming out with a new version of our recce shirt. And our recce shirt is kind of cool. It was a shirt that Mike Glover designed. Version one, it's still my favorite shirt that I wear through the airport when I travel for the company. But version two that Vertex is making is amazing. I saw the prototype of it and I want one. I tried taking the prototype from Overland Expo and they were like, no, you can't have it. And I tried taking it again and they told me, no, you really can't have it. We're serious. So guys, I'm just gonna have to wait for the production just like you. Check it out. It's gonna be the new recce shirt. In the meantime, go to www.vertex.com. Use the coupon code fieldcraft and you're gonna get 20% off. That is 20% off. All right, here we go. Let's get back to this podcast. All right, so now a lot of 2010 and on was more of the same, right? More writing. So I'm writing not just for magazines where I'm getting a couple hundred bucks for 1500 words, but I'm making like three times that as a writer for certain articles and I'm making more for others. So you got to recognize when you start writing, you got to start small and they can't pay you as much as you probably want if it's a small publication. And if you're looking for a place to start, write an article for a free publication where at least you can say, look, here are my examples of how I write. And writing is just thinking on paper. Writing and becoming an instructor, someone that's respected, it goes hand in hand. So people will want to read what you write, and it's a way that you can then parlay that that free writing to get paid writing later on. And eventually you'll be able to say, look, I can command this number for an article. And maybe it's an ego thing. <laughs> you know, here I am telling you to avoid people with ego. Um, but it is kind of gratifying, and it's it's pretty cool to say, you know, in an hour, a good trial attorney can get paid like 400 to 600 bucks, maybe a thousand bucks for an hour. And if you become a really good writer, you'll be on the same level as them if you can finish an article in an hour, right? That's totally, totally doable. And if you do something really, really well, eventually do not do it for free. You will get hit up at some point when people read your stuff and they'll say, Hey, do you mind writing articles for us? You need to say, well, what do you pay? What's the compensation? If they're like, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll give you exposure. Always be careful of that because it might not be worth your time. And if you do something really, really well, you should never do it for free unless you decide to do it for free out of the goodness of your heart for, say, a good cause. So 2012, 2020, moving on, still getting more exposure, getting good feedback, getting a lot of calls from, from Hollywood for crazy shows. There's one called One Car Too Far where they put eventually it was an Asian dude and a British SAS guy put him in a Jeep in remote places. And they're like, get out of here. And, uh, they called me for that one. And then, you know, you start getting the, uh, you know, the phenomenon, or I started getting the phenomenon where people are like, oh, you're like, uh, the bear grills guy, or, oh, you're like, you know, survivor man. And people are going to start associating, or they started associating me with common survival guys, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to drink my urine. I will never suggest anyone to drink any urine, even if it's not your own. That's a joke. So uh, don't drink urine. I'm not that guy. Around the same time that I'm kind of building my name, Sayak Kali was like, hey, we've got this course we want you to run called Hidden Agenda. And it was the night before our instructor weekends. And uh, they're like, the first one, primitive projectiles. Let's, let's talk about 
old school weapons. So I showed the sling, the boleadora, the bola, the atlatl, the bow and arrow. And then the following year, hey, we want you to run another one. Oh, and by the way, we want you to do another one, but this time it's going to be in the United Kingdom. So now imagine this. I'm already running courses and I'm learning to plan how I'm going to source materials so I don't have to fly with them. Amazing time, right? And now I'm teaching internationally, which is another feather on my cap. And there are to this day people in Spain, Hungary, Greece, the UK, they've learned from me. And every once in a while, I get little shout outs from these guys and they're like, look where I am. And I mean, they're in this gorgeous island in the Mediterranean doing bushcraft skills. Very, very cool. You never know the extent of your, your legacy. And I'm also learning from other SIAC instructors, Tuhan Tom Kyer, major influence in my life. A guy who I've had on this podcast, probably one of the most popular podcasts I've done. And one of my favorite ones I've done, who talks about killing your clone and talks about force timing in space and fight math. Please listen to that podcast, go back and find it. Now that really kind of lit a fire in me. And I was like, you know what? I enjoy traveling and teaching bushcraft and I can find nettles just as easily as I can in the UK countryside as I can in upstate New York. I want to do additional bushcraft trips. So 2013, 2014, I went with my good friend, Big John, to Sweden, and we did a bushcraft trip where we visited Mora, Mora Knives, and Gransfors Brooks, and Falneven. And to this day, I mean, I can message my contact at Mora, and my my contact, the owner of, of Falneven, and it's like I created new friends while I'm practicing bushcraft in the home of bushcraft in, in Scandinavia. Well, 2014, I wanted to go back. Big John was like, I can't go. So I said, screw it. I'm going by myself. And I did a trip to Norway on my own where I flew there. I rented a car. I stayed in Bergen for a day or two, did the cultural thing, you know, history teacher. And then uh, I took that rental car and I drove all around Norway, you know, fishing in Norway and hammock camping in Norway and practicing bushcraft and, you know, really just relying on myself. And it's pretty wild when you hear the, the wild dogs at night. So now, 2013, 2014, I make another change. I'm like, I need to start going to trade shows, more and more trade shows. So NRA has the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg. I start going to that. June 2014, I go to Blade Show for the first time. This is the biggest knife show in the entire world. And I start meeting these companies. I go there with a media pass. So I'm able to like walk in early and talk to companies and say, hey, I'm going to do an article. And, you know, that trip was paid for with magazine articles. And it was fun because, you know, now you're talking to, you know, Daniel Winkler. Keep in mind, I've got the Winkler connection with Sayoc and I'm talking to Dom Razo, you know, and he sees me wearing a Sayoc shirt and he's like, brother, you know, here's Dom Razo who has the Dynamis blade and, you know, he's trained with two on Tom, TTK. So, you know, I'm just walking around and I'm, I'm being seen and people are like, oh, I know you. And I'm meeting companies that I've worked for. Like, you guys heard me talk about, I created the Polaris knife. Well, I also created the, the KE Bushy with Fiddleback Forge. Well, now I'm meeting Andy Roy who runs Fiddleback and it's awesome. So 2014, I start meeting up with all these companies and it's it's great. I'm going to Blade Show and I, I've been going to Blade Show for years. 2015, I said to myself, I'm like, you know what? I know I'm young. I was relatively young at the time. And I was like, I want to start something now that is going to continue to grow. And when I was a high school teacher, I had a student who was very affected by the loss of her neighbor, a little boy named Tyler Gingery. Tyler died of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we did a memorial walk at Bristol Central High School. And that money was used to then create an endowment fund at the Main Street Community Foundation for people with that ailment, right? And it, basically what it did was it made a donation every single year off the principal to this fund. So I said, I want to do something similar. 
And I said, I'm going to do the Estella Wilderness Education Fund, where I want to create a permanent endowment fund where it'll never go away and a donation will be made to the Environmental Learning Center of Connecticut, which will send kids to summer camp programs, right? Not underprivileged kids who couldn't afford a summer camp. Now they can through my fund. So that's what I did in 2015. I did multiple events, fundraisers. I reached out to people. I just received notification a couple days ago for 2022 that because of the fund, they cut a check to the ELCCT for 540 bucks to then send kids to summer camp. That was just last year and every year it grows. So uh, that was an important stage in my life where I was like, look, I am making good money as a teacher. I'm having fun teaching survival skills, but I got to do more. I can't just be superficial. I can't just you know say, look at the cool knife I got for writing an article. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to help people. And that's why I did my charity fund. It's still out there, by the way, if you guys want to donate, you can just look up Main Street Community Foundation, look up Estella Wilderness Education, and I guarantee you'll find it there. So thanks in advance if you decide to do that. 2015 is another year where I start expanding, doing more. I even went to British Columbia where they shot First Blood. And this is where I really knew as a writer, I kind of made it. I reached out to a company in Texas called Martin Knives, and they made a their version of the first blood knife, the Lyle first blood knife. I was like, Hey man, I'm going to British Columbia. I'm going to retrace the steps of first blood. I'm a writer. Here's my website. Here are some articles I've written. Would you be interested in sponsoring my trip by providing me one of your knives or provide me a knife at a discount? He goes, no man, you're getting a knife. I'm making one for you. This is awesome. I'm a Rambo fan. That trip was really cool. And I built, you know, like a bird trap with the green handle cord. And, you know, I built a swinging trap like the one that Rambo uses to, to impale the, the sheriff. And I found the Rambo cave and the cliff and all sorts of crazy stuff. That's when I knew I was making a name for myself when people said, oh, we know your work. And that eventually happens when I start writing for Recoil magazine. And they're like, oh, dude, we've read your stuff. You're really good. Write an article on this. And boom, now I'm writing for Recoil, one of the largest gun mags in the entire world. The following year, I take a trip to Alaska. I made a contact in 2015 with Mark Knapp, who is from Fairbanks, Alaska. And he's like, look, I've been trying to get a writer, Terrell Hoffman, to come with me to the backcountry of Alaska and test my knife. I'm like, I know Terrell. I went to practice preach on his property. He goes, oh, then let's do something. So the following year, we planned to do a float trip in Alaska. So I spent five weeks total in Alaska in 2016. Two, I spent touring the lower part of the state. And then the final three, I went with Mark to the Sag River and we floated like 125 miles on the Sag River with the intent to hunt caribou, fish along the way and do a whole bunch of stuff. And I swear to God, that trip changed me. I've written about it before. I mean, when you start kind of just relying on your skill set to get through the day and, you know, you're hunting and fishing and you're feeding yourself with what you're catching. I mean, we were eating two mountain house meals a day, catching fish like crazy, but just the strenuous activity of being up there and doing so much, we actually lost weight. I left there at like 207 pounds and I deliberately went in as heavy as I could. I was eating cheesecake like it was going out of style. So uh, that trip changed me. And I started saying to myself, I'm like, I need to be in the outdoors more. You know, before that trip, I stopped shaving. I was like, I'm not going to shave when I'm up there. That was the last time I had a clean shaven face. And, you know, I don't have the greatest beard. I'm half Asian, but I just like the ability to not have to worry about that in the morning, right? Trim it up every once in a while, but I don't like having to worry about carrying shaving cream and a razor and, you know, all that stuff. So now 
2016, right? I've got this newfound appreciation for being an outdoorsman. I've done stuff like I've survived in the wild of Alaska, you know, building fires and catching fish and doing all sorts of stuff, right? Getting snowed on and rained on and just, it was awesome. Well, I go back to being a teacher. <laughs> so, so now here I am again, living in two different worlds, right? One leg in one, one world, one leg in the other. And, uh, that fall, I got asked to do another TV show. So in 2016, there was a company called Blast Productions. They're still out of the UK. And there's a producer named Ian Dre. Ian was the producer, the showrunner of the Discovery Channel show where they took a 747 or 777 jet, put a whole bunch of cameras in it. And then they were like, let's see what happens inside of a plane when it actually crashes. So they had the pilot parachute out after setting the the, the uh, autopilot. And Ian told me, he goes, yeah, we had all these cameras set up. We were hoping it was going to land in this field or crash in this field. And it overshoots the landing. And there was like two cameras on it out of maybe a three or four dozen. And uh, he's like, yeah, we didn't get the best footage that we wanted, but it was pretty cool to work with a guy that was in a show that I I knew about. So they reached out to me and they're like, Hey, would you want to do this show? Uh, We can't tell you where we're going, but you would be one of two hosts. So they said the key word. I didn't want to be a contestant. I wanted to be a host. I wanted to be on a, on a panel. My agent told me, he goes, look, you've already made a name for yourself. You're not proving yourself. So you shouldn't be on a show where you are, uh, your knowledge is in question. You should be a host. You should be a SME on a panel. And to this day, I will not be a contestant. I'm only going to do that. So if anyone from Hollywood's listening, that's my, my standard. That's why I'll never be on a loan. Now, the interesting thing, one of the guys that was on that show, my, my co-host, he actually has been on a loan and he's a solid guy. Uh, that's Joel Vanderloon. So now I get paired up with this guy, but before that they are saying, look, we need to do some background footage. So they flew out to Connecticut and they met my mom. They met my dad. We filmed stuff with my parents. I had to get former students to pretend to be current students. And they had me dress up as a teacher. They had former teachers, you know, one of my coworkers, Sarah Hertzler, and then uh, Steve Gaudette, you know, teachers at Bristol Central High School and Angela uh, Scacciamici. They came out and they interviewed them talking about me. And then next thing you know, we're in the desert and I had to take off work to, <laughs> to do this crazy race in the desert. And the premise was they wanted me to take a novice across the desert with minimal gear, right? Knife, fire starter, two canteens, one metal cup, and a dry bag. And they said, you can bring three layers of clothing only. So that was it. And they said, we're going to give you a GPS that will not say the distance you have to walk, but it'll just give you the direction. Whoever gets there first, the winner, the contestant, the novice will get $10,000 in cash. So I was like, this sounds awesome. I'll do it. And that's what we did. I met up with my, my novice. His name was Will solid guy. Joel met up with his novice who was a bodybuilder. And we, uh, we ended up doing this crazy event where they started me up on a hilltop and they're like, you're going to marshal in a helicopter. So this helicopter's coming in and you know, I'm, I'm waving it in and I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but it looks really cool on TV. So they're like, Oh, it looked good. You did it right. turns out that the security guard on the show is the one from that one car too far, Gaz Humphrey. And you know, we end up doing this awesome, awesome race. So camping out in the desert, you know, we're, we're getting the novices across the way, the dry bag. We actually used to collect water when we found this disgusting, disgusting body of water that had cow crap all over the place and, uh, spent multiple days in the desert, a couple nights covering 25 miles. And, uh, it was a really interesting experience. My guy won, uh, we won by 43 minutes, I believe, or 45 minutes. And, uh, it was a great learning experience. 
that following April, April of 2017, we heard that the person who originally greenlit the production for Discovery was replaced with someone else. And the person at Discovery who replaced that original person said, this is a fantastic show. You guys did a great job. It's really, really interesting. And, you know, there were plans of us going to like a deserted island, building a raft and floating, you know, uh, wounded warriors from point A to point B on rafts that we made. They're like, this is great. Unfortunately, it doesn't match the direction I want to take the network. So the show was purchased, but then it was scrapped. And I still have still photos from this, but there's no video of the show. And it's really unfortunate because it was awesome. So that's that. Now, 2017, I continue doing more and more stuff like the usual trips, going to Hawaii, St. John, Iceland, national parks. I'm doing bushcraft survival along the way. As much as I can, I'm, I'm showing off skills in different environments, Costa Rica, right? Doing jungle stuff, really expanding my knowledge. 2017, I meet up with my friends at Kafaru. Kafaru is one of the sponsors of this podcast. I've known the Kafaru folks since I started. Jerry Young, one of our instructors, turned me on to the tail gunner and I've been buying their gear and now I'm one of their sponsored outdoorsmen. So they send me stuff for free. That's full disclosure, but I love their stuff. They're beautiful people. And I mean that like they're like family. Patrick Smith, the original owner. Now there's Chad Shumway and, and Aaron Snyder, solid dudes. Angie Jones, my, my sweetheart over there. By the way, Angie and I don't have anything romantically going on, but Angie is just a total sweetheart. She always says I'm like a son to her. So she, she's just a sweetheart. Love you, Angie. So now it's just more of the same, right? I'm doing all the usual stuff. And I'm, what happens in 2018 is I decide I'm going to write a book. So I reach out to Craig Caudill, who runs a nature reliance school. He's run some field craft events. He's going to run more. And Craig's like, I'll introduce you to my publisher. So I talked to the publisher, Sarah Monroe, and she's like, look, uh, you've written hundreds of articles and blogs. You could probably write pretty quickly. Send us a table of contents. So I write the table of contents. I do the sample chapter. Next thing you know, I've got a book contract. And they're like, okay, you're going to write from April to, to July, three months. I hand them 101,000 words. They tell me I have to cut the book by a third. I give them 81,000 words. They settle on that. I do the photography. My niece does the illustrations. Uh, Lauren Harton, you know, she was 14 or she was 12 at the time. Next thing you know, the book comes out, bestseller. And there's a strategy there. So now if you look at the people who put their names on the book as recommending it, there are guys on the back of the cover who are tier one operators. There are primitive folks on there. Gaz Humphrey, the guy that was on One Car Too Far that was on the TV show that I did in the desert a couple of years before, he put his seal of approval on there. I had Nicole Appellian from the show alone. I wanted to make sure that I had someone from the primitive world, the military world, modern survival, what people would assume are rival schools signing off, right? So I had all those. And when the book came out, it was a bestseller. Uh, to this day, four years later, it's still routinely in the top 10. Most of the time it kind of hovers in the top 20, 25 books uh, in outdoor survival skills. And I wanted a skills book. I didn't want a book about here are all the cool things that I've done. Here's, you know, look how awesome I am. A survival book should be a book that imparts knowledge onto people and skill sets onto people. It shouldn't be a, a collection of gear. And there's no surprise that I decided to dedicate that book to my father dedicate that book to Marty and dedicate that book to Pamana Tuhan Chris Syak. So the dedication, it's shared by three men who were instrumental in making me the, the man I am today. And my second book, which I've written, uh, it's been completed since September, I'm sorry, October of 2011. It has 94,000 words, still waiting on what the story is with it, but it's done. 
if I die, there's a plan for that book. Even if, even if I die before that thing gets published, there's the manuscript of it. And I've got the manuscript in my apartment and Jerry Young has the key to my apartment to get into it and put it out to the world. So if I die, let it be known that I'm putting my book out there for the world free of charge. But if or when it gets published, I still have to do all the photography for it, then you're going to love it because book one leads to book two. And I will say that I wrote book one to get book two to ultimately write book three, which I have planned out and I'm ready to execute, which will be the story of my father surviving in that cave, me going to the Philippines, trying to find that cave and learning the survival skills that my father used as someone who never has been to the Philippines before. So again, if you want to <laughs> crowdsource, if you wanna send me to the Philippines, I'm ready to do it. Um, I just think it would be really cool to come full circle back to where everything started, back to where this podcast, you know, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't learn from my dad who lived in a jungle. So now there's more about my book. I'm not gonna bore you with that, but we move on. And in 2020, not only did COVID happen, but I got word that Marty had cancer and this one hit me hard. Um, last time I saw Marty was in September of 2019 and he didn't look well. He looked really tired. He looked really haggard, sunken in eyes. And my friends were like, yeah, Marty's really sick. We like one of my cadre guys, Ben is a nurse and he's like, Marty doesn't look really well. So we started talking and, and Marty calls me up. He goes, Kev, I'm dying. Now think about this one, right? Like I had lost Chris Syok. Pamantu and Chris Syok just a couple of years before. And that was, that was devastating. Marty dies on me and I couldn't see him because of the COVID restrictions. Talking to my friends who were cops, they were like, if you drive up the throughway and you've got Connecticut plates and you're from out of state, they're going to stop you. They're going to tell you, go home. And granted in retrospect, I probably should have gone, but I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to Marty in person. And that really, to this day, it bothers me. You know, I talked to him and, you know, talked to him before he died. And then he, he passed away on May 11th, May 11th of 2020. So uh, that hit me hard. You know, that was a blow because now Wilderness Learning Center closing, I was on my own, Marty passing. Now I was on, a di I was on, an, on my own on a different way, right? Like with the WLC closing, I still could call Marty and be like, hey, what's this plant? What's, what's this? How, you know, show me how to do this with leather because uh, Marty taught me all my leather making skills, sewing skills and whatnot, stitching skills. Uh, actually, he used to give me crap because I broke his stitching, <laughs> his sewing machine a couple times. So I'll say that Marty showed me his sewing skills. I'm sorry, his stitching skills, not his sewing. But as fate would have it, COVID's going on. June 30th, I get a text message from Mike Lover. And I was on the Fieldcraft Survival podcast in October the year before. Mike's girlfriend at the time, the mother of his kids was like, hey, check out this book. Mike read it and he's like, this is the guy. This is the guy that I want to join Fieldcraft. So I was on his podcast. We talked for like 90 minutes. And then after the podcast, we talked for like another 90 minutes about just life and being half Asian and six feet tall and all sorts of stuff. Well, June 30th of 2020, I get a text message from Mike and it's like, hey, have you ever thought about teaching survival full time? And I'm like, well, Mike, I've thought about it, but I'm a high school history teacher. I'm making a great salary. I've got a place here. He goes, well, what if I were to offer you, bup, 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 and he lists off all these things. I'm like, I need to think about it. So that year, I was already slated to go out to Gunsight Training Academy in Arizona. And I'm like, hmm, I could go out to Gunsight and then I could do a trial run with Fieldcraft. So I'm plotting things. I, I asked my buddy, Stephen Grosh, uh, Guru Stephen Grosh, he's another SIOC guy. Uh, I'm like, hey, can you get me some ammo? I'll pick it up when I land in, in Phoenix. Met up with him, 
go to Gunsight. I do the Gunsight 250 pistol course, which I got through the Jeff Cooper Memorial Foundation, which if you guys don't know about that, write an essay. You could potentially win a free Gunsight course for writing an essay to the Legacy Foundation. So I go up there. I shoot the course. Um, I actually am the top student out of a class of 25. I won the silver chicken. And then I drive from Paulden, Arizona over to Prescott and meet up with Kevin Owens, meet up with George Bell. And we're like, hey, we're going over to Mike's later. Go over to Mike's, eating steak. I meet Mike's mom, um, you know, talking to Kevin Owens the whole time. And I swear to this day, the reason I joined Fieldcraft was because of Kevin Owens. Kevin Owens and I are very much the same person with respect to being straight shooters, talking about things very directly, letting the truth lead our words, guide our words. Then if it bothers people, they're offended. So what? At least we got the truth out. So uh, because of Kevin, I joined Fieldcraft. And I will say to this day, my decision to move to North Carolina was largely driven by the idea of working again for Kevin Owens. So uh, right off the bat, I start fitting in with the team, right? Like Austin Lester's working there at the time and Kevin Owens and George Bell. And, you know, we're, we're having a great time teaching this bug out on foot course. And I'm like, these are the people I need to be with right? Like that first experience teaching bug out on foot, uh, meeting Mike, seeing how the team operates, meeting, you know, Katie, who was working in sales at the time. I was like, man, this company's got it going. It's, it's great. That's it. Like I decided then and there I'm, I'm leaving teaching. So I go and I get a COVID test. I fly back to Connecticut. I show them I'm negative COVID. I go back to school and they're like, you can't be here. You are coming from a high transmission state, uh, from the past couple of weeks you need to quarantine for two weeks at home. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, I am negatively COVID. I'll go take another test right now. And they're like, nope, you need to stay home. So I said, screw it. I want to work. You will not let me work. Red flag number one. So during the convocation, right, when all the teachers come back, I'm like, you know what? You guys are done. I'm going to finish up this year. I'll, I'll have 15 years as a teacher. And then I'm done as a teacher. I'm joining Fieldcraft in the summer. So then the convocation, they start saying some stuff, which I think the woke mob would probably agree with, but I certainly don't. I'm like strike number two. So then as a teacher, you know, we're doing like the remote and sometimes in person and they've got all these crazy rules, like one way hallways. Like if I were to send a kid five feet to the right of my door, instead of one sixth of a mile around the building to his locker, then I would be in trouble for violating COVID rule. I was like, strike three. And it just kept going like, oh, we're doing a fire drill, but don't worry about the one-way hallways, guys. And I, I remember saying out loud, because I'm a little punchy, right? I do this in staff meetings. I'm like, so apparently guys, COVID knows that, you know, we're doing a drill. It's not going to infect you. Like what the hell? And it just got worse and worse and worse. And I decided, I'm like, I'm done. So I decided that October 30th, 2020 was my last day. I felt like my time was up there, right? I'm a white, straight, conservative male, and there's basically a target on my back. I mean, when you're told by parents, oh, you're arguing with my child. I'm like, no, 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 not arguing, debating, which I will do for anyone. If you told me, hey, you don't know anything about the outdoor survival skills, I'd be like, okay, let's argue that I do. Or if someone said, hey, everyone should have guns, I'll say everyone. And I just want to get people thinking at least through like one layer of scrutiny about their statement. Well, I got told that that was very intimidating. So as a result, I said, I'm done with teaching. I left on a great note. When I left teaching, the staff did a virtual send off. I still have the screenshot of everyone on the computer saying goodbye to me. They gave me a compass that had the GPS coordinates of the school. And they're like, don't forget your home. And I love the faculty over there. Um, do not agree with the politics and public education anymore. 
but I will never, ever say that my faculty, my fellow coworkers at Bristol Central High School aren't the best in the freaking business. Um, most of the teachers there wanted to be in the rooms with the students. The board of ed said, no, we're doing remote. So I was done. So uh, that year, I pretty much left teaching. I went on a fishing trip with my buddy Jay Reichler and we went fishing Western New York in November of 2020. I'm out in Utah looking for a place to live. And by January, I was moved out of my my apartment. Or I'm sorry, moved out of my townhouse in Connecticut. And I was driving across country with a U-Haul to meet up with my pod. And I lived in Pleasant Grove, you know, for a year. And then I moved to Provo and I lived in Provo for a year afterwards before eventually moving here. But it was funny because I landed in Utah. I basically, I got in on the final day, drove over Parley's. I met up at the uh, Parley's Canyon in Park City. I met up with the real estate place in Pleasant Grove. I got my keys and then I drove to Fieldcraft and I said, hey, I'm here. That was a Friday. And I taught a class, a survival class on Saturday. So January 18th, 2021 was my first full-time course for Fieldcraft Survival as a full-time instructor. So guys, that pretty much explains my story, right? The whole idea of becoming a survival instructor, bushcraft instructor, outdoors educator, whatever you decide to call me, doesn't matter. And my experiences are not going to be the same as yours. And remember this expression, it's one I've said before, comparison is a thief of joy, right? If you try to do everything that I did, you're not going to accomplish it because I was in the right place at the right time for certain things to happen. I, I matched skill and personal connections and I knew the people around me uh, could help me with this, that, and the other thing. Don't try to match what I'm doing Try to do better than what I'm doing, right? Try to do better than what you're doing now and just enjoy the ride. I will never discourage you from pursuing outdoor education because it's incredibly worthwhile to see people learning from you when they want to learn from you as opposed to being told that they have to, right? There's a difference between compulsory education and voluntary education, right? When someone is learning math in high school, not the same as when someone is paying to learn land navigation skills where they're doing the same type of math in an outdoor survival class, right? So if I'm going to leave you guys with any overarching messages, right? Probably the most important part of this podcast, I will tell you number one, grind, right? You have to earn your place every single day. Do not rest on your laurels. Granted, I've done some cool stuff, but I will never say, oh yeah, you know, in 2009, I was on the history channel and that's all I have. You have to be doing cool stuff every single day. You have to earn your place every single day adding value every single day, or else you are no better than that football player from high school that still wears a letterman jacket. who's like 50 years old. And he's saying, you know, coach would have put me in, right? Don't be uncle Rico. This July is basically 16 years since I started working as a survival instructor at the wilderness learning center, right? Prior to that, how many years was I a canoeing instructor, canoeing and kayaking guide? Success does not come overnight. And I still don't consider myself truly successful because there's always something else that I could do. And I, you know, I'm my harshest critic and you should be harsh on yourself. So stay hungry, right? Grind, stay hungry, learn to do a lot of different skills, right? Because initially you're going to have to do it all before you can afford to pay someone to be your chef or your cook on your course. You'll have to cook yourself, learn to maintain your gear. So you don't have to send it somewhere to have it repaired, spend your money wisely, there are people who join the survival game and they built a brand, so to speak, and they're spending money on pens and pencils 
as opposed to materials that their you know students are going to use in a class they're giving away money pens and pencils it's like there's a time for that but it's not your first move so recognize that there's always a correct order of events make sure that you're freaking credible okay you're either going to make choices that are going to help or hurt you there is no in between and that could be as simple as someone saying oh i'll be your co-instructor it's like no 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 you are going to be my assistant you're not an instructor be very careful of who you give your power away to also be very careful of who you give your money away to okay they're going to either help you or hurt you there is no in between another thing guest instructors right they can be liabilities they can also power assist you they can help you so make sure you find good people and don't be afraid to bring in good people who are better than you right because you should not be the smartest person in that room or around that campfire bring in people who will elevate you you can piggyback on other companies just make sure that they're the right companies and if you establish a relationship with a company you need to have some integrity and maintain that relationship guys i told you earlier in the podcast i am very good friends with the, with the folks over at kafaru i use kafaru sleeping bags i use kafaru backpacks i sing the praises of kafaru i, I carry a kafaru rogan fanny pack I've had other companies offer me money to carry their stuff, to use their stuff. I've had companies offer to send me free stuff. And I'm like, no, Kafaru, they're my friends. And at what point will you sacrifice your integrity or your friendship for the dollar? If you do that, then it says something about your character. And yeah, you might not be the richest person at the end of the day, but you can sleep well knowing that you looked out for those people who looked out for you right you got to make sure that you have that integrity you got to define that integrity you got to make sure that you're not selling out you need to match your words with your actions you got to stand for something right like there's that expression if you don't stand for something you fall for anything well again what do you want to be known for as an instructor what companies will you stand by right companies might go through a bad spell or maybe they have a bad product does that mean that you turn your back to them like i said to this day kafaru x attack gossman knives etc etc right these are all companies that i respect highly and they're they're good friends you know just be very very careful of who you sell your reputation to there are folks out there in the marketing world who only care about the dollar they don't care about you right you're a tool so understand if there's like some chief marketing officer or some director of marketing or you know some marketing guru from some company that says, "Hey, you're going to do this." Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to pivot and learn to manage the people that are trying to work with you. You don't necessarily have to agree with them, but know how to manage them. Manage their expectations and manage your own. Make sure that you're accessible. Right? I always tell people in courses, "Here's my Instagram account, here's my email account. Never be afraid to reach out to me." And the other thing is, make sure that you're always willing to answer a question even if you don't know it it's okay to say i don't know and if you don't know it say i don't know it but i'm going to research it and i'll get back to you that goes over extremely well i know i respect instructors that do that for me and that's why i do that for others and you know like i said this this podcast is kind of like a little bit of lessons learned it's a little bit of advice if you want to get into doing what i'm doing it's a little bit of you know my personal story because these are things that I don't get to say very frequently in my own podcast interviewing guests and I just want to get the record out there. You know, obviously I'm going to give shout outs to all the companies that I work with now. You know, these are not paid endorsements or anything like that. These are good people. My knives 
Gossman knives, Kahuta knife, right? Kahuta Blade Works makes the KE Bushy. Um, prior to that was Fiddleback Forge. Kafaru, obviously, you know, I'm thinking of Sleeping Indian Wool makes my my wool survival vest, which I took to Alaska. I mean, the list goes on and on of, of good companies that are out there that have supported me. And like I said, guys, I wouldn't be here without Chris Syak, Marty Simon, Jose Estella, Mike Glover, giving me the chance to do this. Always, always, always remember where you guys came from because that's your foundation. And if you're trying to decide where to go from here, look at your roots. And as long as you have a good foundation, you'll never, ever make a bad decision. Well, hopefully we'll never make a bad decision. All right, guys, that's basically it. If you have any questions, you can email me, right? If you heard something where you're like, what did you say there? I'll gladly expand on it. I'm just trying to keep this podcast relatively short. I mean, I could write a whole book on this whole experience and maybe I will one day, book number four. <laughs> but uh, for now, I'm just happy getting this information out there and I appreciate you guys listening. And just like I signed off the last one, my job, my goal is to educate, equip and empower others. And hopefully this podcast helped you out with all those. All right, guys, I'm out here. I'm going to finish up my coffee and grab some lunch, but thank you so much for listening. <laughs>